This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEM. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome to Inspiring Sports Stories, brought to you by Bower and O'Day. With me in the studio today is women's football trailblazer and newly crowned number one ticket holder at the West Coast Eagles, Jan Cooper. Jan, welcome. Thank you, Mark. Great to be here. So what's it like to be the number one ticket holder at the biggest sporting club in Western Australia, for starters? Oh, I'm, I'm actually, I was overwhelmed when I was first invited to be that. I was speechless, which is very unusual for me not to have something to say, but um, I'm, I'm pretty chuffed from a, a sort of a club and sporting point of view that the club feels that someone who's not a global giant like a Samantha Kerr or Daniel Ricciardo or Damien Oliver who have been previous ticket holders, uh, they felt that what I've done um, and what myself and my colleagues have achieved is worth acknowledging. So, and I'm pretty ancient too in terms of age, so I kind of think they um, aren't ageist either. So I think it's great role modelling for our community really. Who approached you? Trevor Nisbet. He had to um, propose it to the board uh, and then the board came back and said, yep, you're our number one. So, yeah, pretty I, chuffed. <laughs> so I was at the launch and they presented you with a number one ticket holder and you very humbly went up and, and accepted and then and then walked off again. Escaped. I was, I was, <laughs> I was waiting to hear from you, hear, hear what you had to say. I think you've got a lot of good things to say, Jane. Oh, thanks, Mark. Uh, well, yeah, the chair, um, Paul Fitzpatrick, said to me, Jane, you need to keep it to under 20 minutes. Right. And I thought, I thought well, maybe he means I don't need to speak at all. So I just turned around and walked off. <laughs> I think I think that we're expecting you to say something. And your, your journey in football has been such a remarkable journey, and your ability to, to shift where the game is, I think, is one of the game's more remarkable achievements. So let's go back to where it all began. Tell us about your childhood growing up. Oh, look, I had the best childhood, um, and quite a slab of it was in the goldfields. We lived in Boulder. Dad was the captain coach of Mines Rovers Footy Club, and because it was only like no, 300 metres away from our house and there was no such thing as, um, you know, having to keep to the left-hand side of the road, bike helmets, whatever. I think the family rule was coming when the street lamps go on, basically. Yeah. So because I love my dad, I'd ride my bike up to Die Wright's footy club, which was shared with Boulder Tigers, and I'd watch him train and then go up for the games in the car and toot the horn every time they got a goal and, you know, that really good country experience. And as I got a bit older, then I'd, you know, muck around with other kids, mainly Aboriginal kids, because they were the ones who could kick the footy really well. Yep. Um, they weren't allowed to go to school, but they were allowed to go to footy. Um, and I didn't realise why as a child. So that was a really good uh, experience for me to understand a bit more about what they've had to put up with in life and build my empathy there. But I just followed dad around basically. And then with my brothers, I had an elder brother and a younger brother. We'd kick the footy in the backyard all the time with their mates. I was always allowed to do that. Um, so, you know, footy's always been a big part of my life, but so is physical activity. Like when it wasn't the footy season, we'd be doing backyard cricket or um, mum would have loved me to have played hockey because she was a pretty decent hockey player, but my mates played netball. So that was kind of my first foray into team sport. So what sort of netballer were you? Were you a bit rough and tumble? Or yeah, you... I was a bit tough. Yeah, <laughs> I was a bit, it, it was such a 
um, like I loved it because it was a team environment, but I used to get a bit frustrated because I wanted to use my body. You know, I just had this innate feeling that I needed to be physical and because you got pulled up in netball back in the day. So you weren't allowed to be physical because you'd keep giving away penalties. Um, basketball was a little bit better, uh, a little bit more forgiving of physicality, but you know, I wasn't allowed to play footy, obviously. And um, it's a little bit ironic because the very first women's league in Australia was out of the goldfields. Is that right? Yeah. The four men's teams, the four were four women's teams, the very first league, 1921. So it was kind of ironic for me to have been a, a small primary school kid growing up in the goldfields. And by that stage, there was no footy for women. Um, and the other ironic thing was when I started working in football, one of dad's best mates, Greg Cox, who was a very good footballer for East Perth, runner-up in the Sandover medal one year, I believe. His mum won the very first, fairest and best of the whole league in that women's league, and he never told me. So there I was working in footy, and it's like, Uncle Greg, why didn't you tell me your mum was a footballer? You know, like I thought that was pretty incredible. Anyway, I've got a picture of her now in the winning premiership team, but, yeah, he, he just didn't think it was important. So... <laughs> To the uninitiated, your father is John Cooper, who yes. of course went on to be uh, a famous football administrator at, at Swan Districts during a, a golden era for the club. Yeah. Um, how long were you in the goldfields for? How old were you um, when you shifted? I reckon we got there when I was about three and left when I was probably about 10. Yeah. So seven years, six or seven years. Yeah. And it was a bit poor mum. I remember dad sort of got promoted in the bank. Um, so he walked to the bank from our place in Burt Street, Boulder, and he got a promotion, which he was very excited about, I recall. But the promotion was to Kalgoorlie. <laughs> so <laughs> mum was a bit upset because uh, as a child, I loved being in the goldfields. I didn't see it being rough and ready or anything. Yep. But for a woman, I think it must have been pretty tough. What sort of player was your dad? He was a pretty robust sort of administrator. Yeah, he was a robust player. See, I, I don't remember too much about how he played except thinking he was quite physical yeah. and that he couldn't kick. <laughs> <laughs> he, because he had, as a, um, I think it was 14 years of age, he got a disease uh, back in those days that was life-threatening called osteomyelitis, which is a blood infection basically. Mm -hmm. Because of playing footy, he, he must have got a stop down his calf that opened up his calf got infected because it was a muddy day, maybe not disinfected properly, whatever. So he virtually spent nine months in hospital as a 14-year-old. Yeah. Um, and, and I just remember after a while he started waddling when he ran or walked, like he just swayed like a duck. Um, and that's how he played footy. So he's always proppy and uh, he, he just never seemed to kick the ball very well to me. So... Sorry, Dad. <laughs> but he got the ball quite a bit and he was quite physical, as I recall. And what about your, your two brothers? Did they, they play football well? Yeah, yeah. Um, it, well, they both enjoyed the levels they played at. My yeah. elder brother was also quite feisty. He's quite a gentle boy, really, or man now. But um, but when he was on the footy field, he was a bit of a John Warsfold, you know. He'd crossed that white line and um, he, his personality flicked really, he was a centre-half back because he was quite tall for mm -hmm. his day. Um, he played for what was then weight because uh, he did an engineering degree there. And my younger brother <laughs> also started waddling at some stage like Dad because his knees were useless. He had the Cooper Curse knees. Um, and 
he played also, I think, for um, A-grade Amis. Uh, yeah, but he, he preferred other sports to footy in the end because of his knees. So what other sports did you play? You mentioned netball and basketball. Oh, look, I played whatever people wanted me to play. Like I remember walking past the cricket nets at uni one day and because I played backyard cricket with my brothers and dad and the uncles and the cousins and everything, it was like, well, these girls playing cricket, you know, like I didn't think I could do that either. And then one of them knew me and she yelled and said, do you want to have a bowl? And I went, love to. And we ended up playing, I don't know, four or five years for UWA, which included my first year at um, Kitanning as a health and phys ed teacher. I would drive up for Perth until I thought, well, that's not immersing me in my community. Yeah. And then a, a men's team from Wooden Nilling, which is just a tiny town outside of uh, Kitanning, didn't have enough numbers. And so they heard that I'd been a state cricketer and they didn't care that I was a woman. So... They said, would you like to play for our um, B-grade men's team? And I jumped at the idea. So I played one season with them before kind of hanging up the cricket pads. <laughs> so batsman, bowler or rounder? No, I was, a, I was a fast bowler. So Dennis, Lily and I share the same birth date. Right. And that's about it really, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but I did I did do my best. Yeah, yeah. Was the country cricket can be quite fierce. How was the, the competition? Oh, well... Um, I thought it was beautiful, first of all, that the blokes let me play and they were very respectful. You know, there was sort of no F-bombs dropped around me as I, I can recall or whatever, but they didn't, the ball was done and dusted by the time they gave it to me each innings, you know, so I really didn't, I had to rely on the batsmen making errors rather than me turning the ball well or having any pace with them. But um, yeah, I, I had a great time. I loved it. Did you make a few runs? No, because I never hardly got to bat. <laughs> so, but I, I, when I did get to bat, now I don't think I'm, I've made too many. We'll take a break. We'll come back to talk about uh, life as an adult and, uh, and how women's football became a bigger and bigger part of your life. This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEM. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Sports Stories. We're talking to Jan Cooper, women's football trailblazer, one of the architects of the current AFLW. Jan, your father, John, became one of WA's more famous football administrators. He was the president of Swan Districts and during a golden era, at the club as well, moving into the early 1980s. Tell us about that time in your life. Oh, well, I had a lot to do with uh, Swans and Dad, at, well, clearly Dad, um, at that time because uh, his last year was their first premiership in a three-peat. And, and I said to him, um, I just want to do something at the club. I want to try and give back because, you know, I'd watch all their games as I always had over the years. And he said, look, I, I think they're um, getting some women in as physios. Maybe you could be a trainer. So I did. There was, uh, you know, it was a club ahead of its time, really. So in the medical team with three girls in their final year of physio, and then there was me. So I did my first aid and trainers course and whatever else to get up to speed. But I already had quite a bit of an idea simply because I was a phys ed teacher. So you know, biomechanically and 
physiologically I understood bodies and all of that stuff. So, uh, so I was there for all of the three premierships. So dad left the presidency, Bill Walker took over for the last two of the three, Pete. So it was amazing. And for me as a, uh, I was still in my athletic prime. So as a state volleyball player at the time, I remember um, moaning to John Todd, who was the coach of the league, saying, uh, Toddy, I'm going to have to take uh, eight days leave without pay from my teaching job because as a woman, you're not allowed to be a state player and take time away from teaching. But if you're a male, you get leave with pay if you're representing the state. It just seems so unfair. So I was just, I don't know why I was whinging to him because what was he going to do? I don't know. I liked Toddy. Yeah. Um, lots of people didn't, but I did. Um, so he organised then a bucket and all the players dropped coin in and the members that night dropped coin in. And so they virtually paid for my whole trip. And that's the kind of thing that the club did, you know, for anybody, not just me. So, and the other thing that I got out of being there too, I just loved that it was so much more higher performance than the state teams that I'd ever been in because it was so well resourced. It was televised. There was huge crowds. You know, there was nothing like um, seeing Steel Blue with 15,000 people crammed in there, you know, yeah. every blade of grass. You couldn't sit. You had to stand because every blade of grass had feet on it. Um, but to see the resources that were available to the fellas, um, how much they improved with all of those human resources and monetary resources as well, um, the stats behind the performances started coming in then as well. So to be an athlete in my prime and not having access to those opportunities, I felt that I could then push my sports to try and get some of those things into the codes that I was playing. Did you have uh, heroes within that team? Like that was a pretty good team. That's one district's team oh, of the early 80s. It was stellar. Like yeah. who wasn't my hero really? It was, yeah. I remember, um, well, Leon Baker was probably my favourite player just because he was so humble and quiet and just went about it. But then there was the Narco brothers, you know, Black Magic, and that's with all due respect because Magic Narkel especially just had the ball on a string. He could mm -hmm. do anything. Um, Peter Satori, Alan Kranzberg, um, Murray Rance, Don Holmes, like uh, Don Langsford, were, like every player just seemed to be either a state player or the VFL wanted them or, you know, it was astonishing. Yeah. So there weren't women's football competitions, but there were games of women's football. There was the famous Powder Puff Derby that used to be played. Yeah, played two of those. Did you? How'd you go? What sort of play? Oh, well, I thought I was quite good, but I, I was like, Dad, I couldn't kick because I've got a gimpy foot. So, oh. <laughs> <laughs> But I got the ball quite a bit. <laughs> were you tigerish? Were you rough? No, were I was you... very tigerish. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but fair, fair, but just, you know, aggressive, I suppose, in terms of within the rules of the game. Yeah. But I thought I would always be like that. If I got the chance. <laughs> How old were you when you became aware that women's football could be played as a competition? Uh, so this is one of the annoying parts of my life, really. Um, my husband, Ross, was working with the Football Development Trust, which was the football development arm of yep. the WA Footy Commission at the time. And he was general manager of development. And he came home, uh, I don't know, one Friday and said, uh, do you want to come and watch the Women's League Grand Final with me? 
on Sunday and I just about killed him because I was something like 32 years of age. My body was starting to fall apart in terms of athleticism and I was so annoyed that he was had been working in football. He knew of a women's league and he didn't tell me because I would have jumped ship from the sport I was playing at the time and had a crack because I, I think my body would have been okay for a couple of seasons. Yeah. Um, so I just about killed him and I couldn't bring myself to go and watch the game because no. I was so upset. So, so yeah, at the age of 32, all of a sudden I knew there was a WA Women's Footy League around. Um, and, yeah, then I didn't sort of follow it because I was too old uh, athletically. So it wasn't until I actually got given um, the job at the WA Footy Commission that I then paid a bit more attention to it and that's when I drew on my experience at Swan Districts to go, well, the women aren't even anywhere near that experience. And my experience was back in the 80s. And now we're talking 2006. Why are they so far behind the men? And so that kind of Swan's experience shaped a lot of my bullishness around trying to get those extra opportunities and equity for the women. So how did you get involved in women's football administration? Well, um, it was more off the back of what I was doing in my part-time teaching role at Narragin. We shifted to Narragin so that Ross could um, spend more time with the family because footy tends to have office hours and then football hours. So it takes a fair lot of your uh, time. And our family was young. Our boys were small, you know, five and seven or something. So off we go to Narragin. And... Um, the primary school that I was working at, we did some good things in the classroom with literacy using AFL as a vehicle, not dinosaurs, pirates, polar bears or whatever the other themes were that they'd tried, particularly with the Aboriginal boys. They didn't, it didn't resonate with them learning about polar bears or whatever, but AFL, it resonated and they knew a lot of literacy. Yep. They could commentate beautifully. They knew how to spell footballers' names because they were related to like half of them. Um... So it was off the back of that that a uh, high school mate, Colin West, was then the general manager of the Footy Development Trust and he, was, uh, he implemented a, an AFL school ambassadors program, heard about what we were doing at um, East Narragin Primary School, knew that we were coming back to Perth and said, would I like to help him with that program? And by the way, knowing that you're passionate about football, would you like to develop the women and girls pathway? And I went, are you kidding me? I would love to. Like how good that if I can help, you know, the girls behind me don't have to look at the game and go, oh, well, we can't play that. Why was us? If I can provide them some opportunities that I wasn't, how good is that? We'll take a break and we'll be back to talk about how the women's game was able to elevate so quickly from that point. This is Inspiring Sports Stories brought to you by Bauer and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEM. Thanks to Bauer and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Sports Stories. Thanks to Bauer and O'Day. And with me in the studio is Jan Cooper. Jan, what was the state of women's footy when you first joined the WA Football Commission? Um, WA probably had 1,400 schoolgirls running around, which I thought was pretty impressive because, again, I didn't even know that there was an inter-school girls comp. And 
probably around 130, 150 women's league players. So I think they had six teams at, at that time. Um, and they weren't affiliated to waffle clubs or anything like that, were no, they? No, no. Right. They were wherever a bunch of mates really wanted to get together. There was a little bit of history with some of them, though. They'd been going for a number of years. Um, but, yeah, generally they were put together by mates. So no affiliation at all. And what did you do first? How did you get it moving? Oh, God. The, the body of work behind it was massive, really, to be honest. My job description said you're going to have to grow female board members, umpires, coaches, players, blah, blah, blah. And, of course, you can't do that in one person. So the whole system was there. So, Duff, if you're in charge of coaching, all of your courses should be a bit more friendly so that they're targeting females who are coaching or coaches who are coaching female footballers. So I tried to first get the commission to be integrated and look at whoever was leading that portfolio. They had to be strategic in their moves to get women and girls involved. So that was the first body of work. Um, and the second one was around the talent pathway. So back in the day, the women's league volunteers would put together the state team and that was it. There was no other state team. And there was a national carnival that had just about every state and territory in it. And one of the strongest leagues outside of WA was actually the ACT. So they had a national carnival. I went to that. It was nowhere near any of the other national carnivals I'd gone to in my other sports. And it was nowhere near the level that Swan Districts and Waffle had back mm. in the day. So we're talking 2006 and, you know, they're still light years away from what I'd experienced at Swans, for example. So really the body of work was around trying to get the leaders to get invested to make sure there was passionate drivers in every portfolio to drive the development strategically. And and in the first instance, all I did, I feel, was get people on the visionary bus to say, if you provide the same opportunities for the other gender, you will bring more revenue into the code. You'll bring more volunteers, members, fans, merch, whatever else in the, in the mail pathway. How did they receive that? Was it... Did you, were they receptive to that or did you meet resistance? Oh, huge resistance at the beginning. Um, and especially investing actual finances in the women and girls pathway was things like, well, why do they want to play our game? It's brutal. Won't they lose their femininity or they'll get hurt or you haven't got special bras or um, the facilities were useless. They were useless even for the boys. You know, there was no toilet doors. There was open urinals that stunk. There was tiny little rooms for the umpires that were disgraceful. Um, some of them didn't even have an outside door on them for privacy, let alone to be able to lock and talk about the game and make the vote count at the end of the game for the umpires. It, like there was so many abysmal things really. So the, the way um, myself and my colleagues went about it was really to say we need to change the mindset of the leadership and the decision makers within the code, and it needs to be uh, an integrated approach, not just those involved in women and girls fighting the fight, and then everything else needed to come from there. So, the the and the barriers, you know, sometimes I look back and traumatise myself because I think, <laughs> oh my god, the misogyny, the sexual harassment, 
if you're an Aboriginal lesbian woman, you got four times as much um, difficulties as I did. Yep. Um, totally marginalised, uh, getting comments like, you know, the grass is only for the boys. Well, so the girls are here to play where they meant to go play on the roof of the change rooms, which are, by the way, abysmal and not welcoming and not safe. So I like and that's only the tip of the iceberg that I've I've described. So it was a huge body of work to sort of change mindsets, change leadership involvement and, and get people to understand this is the right thing to do. So when did you feel you were making progress? When, when did that start? I reckon um, – 2010. So that meant I'd been working for the AFL for four years by then. And we managed to get uh, every state and territory to have a dedicated person. Um, so you, you were the AFL's national manager of female football yes, development? Yes. Yeah. Yep. So one of the first things that I felt needed to be done was that every state and territory had to have a me that role had to be in place in every state and territory. So that's what we did first of all, and that was a mixture of men and women. And quite interestingly, the men who were in those roles, some of them were marginalised as well and given a hard time by the fellas working in the, the code. So it wasn't easy for them either um, being in the women and girls pathway. So that was the first thing we had to do, and we basically had that in 2010, and that's when we sat down and we sat down at AFL House and we always had an annual meeting. So the AFL were very good at resourcing that. We had a few of the key women's league volunteers there, like a Debbie Lee, who was president of the VWFL at the time. Um, I think Carolyn Hills from WA and a few others from around the country. So those key women's league volunteers, because we actually had to improve the state women's league. They were all over the place, not very professional, played on crappy grounds, had useless coaches. You know, like that's quite brutal in its um, in, in my description, but that's what it was kind of like at the time. It needed to be far more professional and I knew what swans were like back in the 80s. So to me, that was my benchmark. It had to be minimal, at least that, but better because that was in the 80s and now we're talking mid-2000s. So at that meeting, we all said, what do we want? We want a televised National Women's League. How will we know that we'll have the depth of talent to provide that. And we said we reckon about 250,000 registered girls and women and a completed talent pathway, which in our eyes would be 16 schoolgirls, 18 nationals, national carnival for women um, and every state league with a, a minimum standards and then we'd be re ready for a national televised women's league. So that's 2010. How yep. many participants do you reckon there were in women's footy in 2010? Uh, in 2010, there was something like 96,000. And by May 2016, when Gillan McLaughlin, the CEO of the AFL, said, without much consultation, I think we could have a National Women's League next year <laughs> in 2017. Most of us choked for five minutes and then we went, hang on a minute, we're nearly there. We've got 480,000 women and girls running around. So we've actually surpassed what we thought we needed. So, yeah, we're ready in that respect. We just need to get the AFL clubs ready to accept the women and go from there. So good on you, Gil, for, you know, going a bit early, but he kind of wasn't in terms of the population. Did you feel like Gil wanted that as part of his legacy, perhaps, as the, as the AFL CEO? 
Because it is. It's a major part of his legacy, oh, isn't it? it? It will be, for sure, yeah. yeah. Um, if he ever leaves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Damn. <laughs> um, it, it's interesting. Look, I don't know that it, that was his motive. Yeah. I just – he was one of those fellows that you just needed to sit with him and give him the evidence and, and show him the games and then he was smitten. You know, mm. he could see the bravery, he could see the athleticism, he understood the passion, and that's basically all we did with the major decision makers. As often as possible, we would sit next to them at a women's, a significant women's game, and just, I mean, truly, some of the blokes would have been bored witless with me, but bad, like I wasn't going anywhere. And I did that all the time. Here's an example. So... I'm at Sydney Swans game. David Matthews is now um, GWS. GWS. CEO, yep. yep. And the Sydney Swans have invited me to their lunch because it was Frio versus Swans. And so I'm sitting there and and the wives of key decision makers were always very accommodating because I'd say, do you mind if I sit next to your husband? Not to flirt or anything. I'm just trying to sell a message and I've got some evidence here and they go, be my guest. Because <laughs> most of them had daughters. So, um, so I'm sitting there and Dave Matthews is there and saying, so Dave, why is it that we've got an international cup for the men, but we don't have an international cup for women? And at that stage, I knew that there was little pockets of women around the world, like Montreal, Canada, somewhere in France, somewhere in Italy. And he went, yeah, why haven't we? Make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> that was sort of how Dave worked. He yeah. He just needed to be you know, cajoled a little bit and then he'd make, make things happen and change mindsets himself and be the messenger, get the resources that were required. So that happened a lot. We'll take a break and we'll be back to talk about women's football today and the incredible sport that it's become and the incredible level it's reached in such a short period of time. We're talking to Jan Cooper. This is Inspiring Sports Stories. We're brought to you by Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEM. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back. And we're talking to Jan Cooper. And uh, for this last segment, we'll call her the number one ticket holder at the West Coast Eagles. Jan, could you dream how quickly it's become what it's become? Could you have dreamt it? No, not at all. Um, I knew that there would be crowd investment because we'd done a bit of research with women's nationals to say, would you watch a women's game on TV? And we got some really good responses and quite a, a body of work was done there. But what has absolutely excited me and surprised me is the skill level change. So... To me, that's all the players needed was to be exposed to quality coaching, quality S&C, some extra resources, um, an AFL club that believes that the girls can play really well and be whatever they want to be and nurture that um, passion. So I wasn't expecting it to be where it was and I wasn't expecting live audiences to be as huge as they have become either across the world, let alone in Australia. Do you remember the game Fremantle played at the stadium against Collingwood? I yes. think it was the game where Dana Hooker got leather poisoning, I think. Correct. 
<laughs> that must have been an amazing experience. Oh, yeah. it was. And and again, what got me was friends from Victoria who'd been instrumental in building the, the women and girls game over there actually weren't Collingwood supporters, weren't Docker supporters, but they flew over because they understood the history of it. Mm. So I don't know how many of them flew in, but I knew that I was surrounded by about 20 odd of them that had come over. So... You know, just things like that. That's stuff you expect in the male game that, you know, members will fly across the country to see an important game. Um, but to do it for a women's game just gave me goosebumps. Tell us about going from your role with the AFL back into to Clubland again. Yep. Well, and, and I was a Docker member at the time too. So for the Eagles to come to me and say, we'd like you to help put together our AFLW application and to actually put together the program. And um, the timing was perfect for me because I was getting tired of flying around Australia as a kind of a FIFO, um, helping all the states and territories. And um, I just loved it. I loved the people. And because I'm so passionate about the code too, I think people within Clubland are more passionate than people, say, at AFL House or in development. They're closer to it, aren't they? Yeah, they are. And and they're tribal, whereas at AFL House you'd walk through and there'd be a Hawks scarf there and a, you know, Essendon scarf there and everybody was kind of not really – they were collaborative in one sense but not in another. They were tribal in another, whereas when you're in an AFL club, everybody's on the same page mm. and wants the best for everybody within the club. So I love working in that environment and – and I know you said previously you introduced it as the biggest club in the sport. Well, they have. They've got the biggest membership across the country and they're living in little old WA. So that's an extraordinary achievement with in itself. So being able to work within that and see how the leaders go about things and uh, how the footy department go about things, it's just a fabulous environment to be part of and I'm very privileged to be um, a West Coast Eagle. It is tough to be the second team in town, which Fremantle found out in the men's program and West Coast have found out in the women's program. How are they going and how are they progressing and what do you expect from them this year? Um, I, I just hope that they're a, a lot more competitive because they're the youngest AFLW playing list ever in the history. So lots to like in one respect though. So I just want them to be more, more competitive. Um, and you're right, it's not just a, a tough gig being in the men's space in a two-team town, but in the women's, it's kind of almost worse. Um, what I love about the way that uh, West Coast in particular, because I know that uh, experience, they want to be as inclusive as possible. So I know in the early seasons, some of the AFLW teams were second cab off the rank. So no, you can't use the gym now because the boys are in the gym or no, you can't go on the grass. You'll have to go on that second over, which has no lights. So you'll have to rely on daylight saving for your training session. And so um, I found that a hard pill to swallow when we tried to integrate things and and make things equitable. Um, but yeah, they were still ranking the men's team above the women's. And this is clubs whose women's teams were in the finals mm. and they still weren't giving women access to the grass that they needed to train on, ready for a final. So yeah, that's changed a lot too, of course. It's been a stretch, hasn't it, to get to 18 teams because you're thinning out the talent pool. Yep. How long before we can see a, 
a, a competition that you can look back at and nod and go, yeah, we're, we're where we need to be now? I, I would think at the rate that it's developing, I reckon it's probably three to five years away. Um, I still think we need to draw on the Irish contingent because they are just great athletes and they seem to transition to our game really quickly and they seem to transition much quicker than, say, a basketballer or a volleyballer who was a state or national um, athlete. And those girls don't seem to transition as well now because the uh, younger girls coming through the talent pathway are knocking them out of their positions. But I think in terms of participation, that's still increasing across every state and territory and every competition. And I reckon probably three years we'll see the depth of talent that we really need to have 18 equal, you know, competitive teams. Uh, maybe five at a stretch if things slow down for some reason, you know, if the pandemic hits again or whatever. What about pay for women's footballers? There's talk that the proposal that the AFL Players Association will put will give women about 15% of the total money paid to players. Where are we at with that and and how far further do we need to progress, do you think? See, I'm quite happy with the way the salary situation has evolved because, um, you know, the girls are new to it and they don't know what they don't know. So there's a bit of a learning curve for them to understand their level of professionalism and the standards that are required of them if they're paid to play. And some of them still aren't quite there. And some have gone, oh, near enough is good enough. I'm getting paid. So I'll take the foot off the pedal. Not, not a lot, but enough to go, hmm, actually, you're getting paid. This is your job now, part-time job. So you, you actually have to look at it a little bit differently. I think the thing that I would like to see changed is, yes, an increase in the wages, but also to, I think, four tiers is not enough. Um, to me, a rookie comes in and they get the same um, salary as a girl who's who plays seven or eight games a year and they might not play any, but they're still getting the same wage. I don't think that's fair. I think there should be a fifth tier that's for rookies that's lower and then, you know, they've got something to aspire to because there's a lot of girls that aren't getting a game and are getting the same wage as a fourth tier player who is playing and working their butt off to, you know, get selected each week. And I still think too that... Um, we're a little bit away from getting girls away from their off-grass career. And I'll use Emma Swanson um, as an example, our captain at West Coast. She's a fiery and so she's trying to learn her craft off the field. If all of a sudden she was told you're getting this amount of pay and you have to be full-time, at her age she's now putting her off-grass career on hold and I don't know that that would be the best thing for for her at her time in, in life. And so some of those things have to be worked through before we can truly make it a full-time proposition. One final question. How's your health? You've had a, you've had a health battle. How, how's that going? Um, thanks, Mark. Um, I think I'm going okay. Yeah. Um, everything, all my tests are, are going well. They don't seem to be alarmed by anything untoward in any of my bloods. I'm still getting quite a bit of treatment in terms of the bone density side of things because the, the medication I'm taking um, wipes that out. So a woman my age needs to have good bone density, otherwise I'll fall over. Um, so it's going well. Yeah. You look like you've still got plenty of energy. Just <laughs> just for the uh, for those the uninformed, 
you were diagnosed with breast cancer. Yes. That was that was when? Um, I think that was in 2020. Yep. And the pandemic probably saved me, to be honest, because we had a six-week overseas trip planned. Two days before we were meant to go, I felt a lump, but we'd had to cancel everything because of the pandemic. And if I'd felt that two days before we left, I would have gone, oh, you know what, I'll wait till we come back. So it had metastasized, which meant it's gone out to other parts of the bod. Um, so who knows where it could have gone if I'd gone on the trip. So for me, COVID-19 possibly saved my life in a way. You, you're still full of energy, full of ideas and full of ambition, I think, for, for the things you're doing, Jane, which I think is an absolute credit to you. And I think the other thing that's a credit to you is to make such a, an enormous fundamental difference to the sport that you love and the branch of that sport, which is so near and dear to you. So thank you very much for joining us today and sharing your story with us. And, uh, and may you be with us for a long time to come and, uh, and taking the women's game even further. Thank you very much, Doug. Jan Cooper, our inspiring sports story for today. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEM. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything.